Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Before you hear this episode's conversation, here's a little snippet of what has happened to me on my travels over the last week. I'm sure that you're very excited to listen to Zoe Davison, and so am I. However, first of all, I want to share with you a little topic that Zoe and I talked about that really hit home this week as I was walking the streets here in Craiova in Romania. And that was, how do you stay in the present? How do you stay in the moment? And I was listening to a fantastic podcast by Morgadat, would very much recommend listening to his stuff. And he was saying, really notice the details. Don't simply see, but try and be absorbed in your surroundings at this very point. So what texture are the walls? How exactly would you describe the color of the leaves? What are the noises that are surrounding you? How could I tell my best friend about what am I seeing and experiencing in Cryover? Bring you into the moment and bring you into the present. Now, this is something that Zoe and I are going to discuss amongst many other topics. And so it is with great excitement that I give you this week's episode of Facing Up. This week, I am talking to Zoe Davison, who is a GB pentathlete. She's not just any old pentathlete. She has had some fantastic results already coming forth at the Junior World Championships, being the relay champion at the Junior Euro Women's Championships and is a Olympic hopeful. Zoe has a very bright future in pentathlon. Now, if this was it, then Zoe would just simply be a, a fantastic sports person, but there have been a lot of challenges that have come along the way on Zoe's own journey. And it's these that we're going to delve into today. Thank you so much for joining on the Facing Up podcast. No, thank you. I'm really honoured actually to be here. So thank you. Well, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. I really want to sort of actually start at a high point, perhaps bizarrely and for a change, you came forth at the Junior World Championships. You're on a high. You get invited to train with the senior women's squad at the Bath program. This is the fast track program, channeling people towards hopefully Olympic medals. A lot of money put behind it. You get the chance to train as a full-time athlete. You're on the top of your game. It seems like everything is going according to plan and, and better than that. Can you just take us back to that moment and this is 2018, I think? Yeah, so this is September 2018. After Junior World Champs, actually, I was invited to go to Fontenot for the altitude training camp, which was just the most amazing experience of my life. Like, you'd seen the athletes, and you see all of the athletes, top athletes, train at altitude before they do major championships. And I was actually just going as a training partner for that. And whilst we were up at altitude, they then selected me to go to the Senior World Championships in Mexico City as the youngest ever athlete to go. So 
that was kind of the icing on the cake for my 2018 season. And following that, we had an amazing week in Cancun and then came back to Bath and I joined the World Class Programme. And to say I was riding a high is probably uh, underestimating that. Like it was just the most amazing season that I'd ever had. I was obviously becoming a professional athlete and it's something that you dream of becoming since you were Diddy, like since you started the sport. So for me, that was a massive milestone moment. And yeah, I was very excited to start. So at that point, everything seems to be going right. Did you have any hopes for the future at that point? Do you know where you were going? What you saw the next year being? Yeah, because we have a, an end of year appraisal with all of the coaches, all of the performance team. Me being me, quite a, a I don't know, organised athlete, I guess. And I had went in with my notebook and pen and I had all my scores written out from the season and I had all my goals that I was hoping to get next year. And they kind of just looked at me and slightly laughed and just said, like, they're, they're ambitious, but let's go get them. I was very ambitious and... I was ready to see what the performance team in Bath could bring. Can you share with us like one or two of those goals? Because ambitious to me, if I was doing pentathlon, that would be finishing it without getting kind of stabbed in the fencing and then drowning in the swimming and then sort of trampled by the horse. So what's ambitious Um, for you? It's tricky to say times and scores because you won't be able to understand them. But so I was aiming to come top three at the Junior World Champs the following year. I was aiming to be on the senior squad again and hopefully making some more kind of World Cup senior finals. And then ultimately, my goal was to try and make the 2020 team, which uh, for pentathlon is only two female athletes. So it was a long shot. I was a young athlete, probably quite a naive athlete, but. That was my goal and that's I really, really believed in that and really wanted that. And I think when you do believe in something, you can achieve so much more than you often thought or can think is possible. And so, because I know that it didn't quite go according to plan. So you've got these big ambitions, you're training with the big dogs, these women who are 10 years older than you because you're, what, 18, 19 at the time? Yeah, 18, 19, yeah. Yeah, so... How did that progression go? I think I was put into the senior women's squad, which I was very honoured to be in that squad. That was my goal going there. But immediately I saw them as rivals and I saw the training as if I'm going to beat them onto the team, then I need to do more than them. I need to eat better than them and I need to train better than them. And yeah, like you say, we're talking about athletes that are 10 years older than me that have been to two Olympic Games uh, and it's just not the same. They have 10 years more experience in the sport, 10 years more life experience, I think is a massive difference as well. And for me to be trying to not just train the same as them, but out train them as an 18 year old, like what was going on in my head? I was very lucky to have a a coach that was guiding me at that time, but still the pressure that I put on myself made me compare to others and actually led me to an eating disorder. So that was the first major issue that I encountered through trying to train, overtrain and undereat. I came across an eating disorder and then 
it was in January 2019 that we went to our first international of the season in Budapest and I had a really, really bad performance. And so at that point, I was, again, comparing myself, comparing my results and just thinking, what is going on here? Like I've trained my absolute arse off over the winter. What's going on? So then I kind of hit a little bit of a depressive cycle that went into much more of a depressive spiral and I was clinically diagnosed with depression for about three months following that. So yeah, it was an eating disorder that turned into more of a depression issue. And so how do you think the eating disorder came about with the relationship between you, you're trying to beat these other women, you saw them as rivals you're trying to do something better and how did that then manifest itself in food where did that unhealthy relationship start to creep in i guess it's a it's a comparison to other athletes and what athletes should look like and and as a pentathlete that's really tricky because we do five sports and there's five different ideal body types and we're none of them (laughs) or you can be any of them and i think that's the really tricky part about it like you can sit on the poolside and you see five different body types turning up and people judge that straight away and i had a few comments by coaches actually saying look the best athletes look they're really skinny they're they're running really well and so then it starts playing with your head as an 18 year old 18 19 year old you're thinking okay right if they're really skinny then what does that mean i need to eat less and of course when you're trying to eat less and train more that's not a good combination yeah i think there's an interesting thing here as well like i think a lot of people can relate to the situation where you're put into this context where you're with people who are more experienced, better at what they do because they've just had that time. We can talk about the workplace. You can talk about looking at university, comparing final years with first years. And you can put a huge amount of pressure on yourself saying, I need to be that person now and not realizing that there's been 10 years of hard-won gains to get to that point. And then suddenly trying to fast forward that can really backfire. Yeah, totally. And I think we're in a world now where we want instant gratification um, more than ever. Like you've got Amazon Prime, you can click a button and you've got the parcel the next day. You've, you've got kind of quick fix psychology that tries to miss the depth and the work that you have to do to become a better person overnight. And it doesn't happen like that. Like hard things take time. And if it's not hard, then it's probably not worth it. So I really disagree with that whole quick fix attitude and approach to anything. Like you say, it's transferable from sport to business to life. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm really interested in this idea, you know, how we have to build, we have to really work hard at things over time to make progress and you said you spiraled down in a depressive cycle i wonder what that bottom felt like but i'm I'm most interested in then what were the steps that you then started to climb out of this slippery funnel yeah it's weird to kind of reflect back because i guess it's it's clouded by emotion and memory It's, it's a very complex thing but To me, I remember it being that three months chunk of just hell. And actually looking back, I look back at my training logs and I look back at like what family tells me, what my friends tell me. And actually it wasn't like that. Like I had good weeks and I had bad weeks and I had good times and maybe not so good times. And I think that's the really tricky thing about people with depression is 
they can look fine and it's not a physical injury. They haven't got a cast on their leg and you can't have sympathy for them in that situation. It's a really difficult thing not only to have yourself, but also to identify other people and help other people. But going back to what you're saying about what was the bottom, I think I identified that I had a problem or not me, but there was a problem. And I was then actually advised to get a dog uh, as a company and as something that I could talk to that wouldn't talk back. And uh, there's a lot of research behind animals being a good therapy dog. So he was kind of my therapy dog. I put an advert on Facebook and looking for a rescue dog, went the next day to Wales, found this rescue dog and fell in love. And the reason why I'm telling the story is because that kind of showed that I was already trying to kind of get back up that slippery slope. But I think the lowest I felt, I remember going out one morning for a walk with the dog and I had his lead around my neck and it was one of those like slip ropes. And I, I know it sounds really dark, but I just remember thinking, I don't think I want to live anymore. And there I was with my therapy dog in a beautiful field in Bath and on a sunny morning. And I think that was a real eye-opener for me. And I said to my mum actually afterwards, the only reason why I didn't take that step was because I wanted to live the dog of all things and because we, we, we got such a bond and I felt like his love was unconditional for me. And I said this to my mum, I said, you have to love me, you're my mother, but the dog doesn't have to love me. And I think from there, I call it kind of the line, <laughs> you reach that line and you, don't, you haven't toppled over and you, you then have so much respect that you know how bad that feels. And I then managed to get myself back. I went to the Priory. I was very lucky through the World Class Programme. We had funding to go to the Priory Hospital in Bristol, which is a psychiatric in or outpatient. I was an outpatient and I spent 20 weeks, once a week as an outpatient having therapy there. It sounds like you hit a very, very low point. If you're thinking of, you know, using a slip knot on your dog leash for yourself it was really interesting you were talking about the unconditionality of your dog's love and I'm wondering to what extent that you were feeling you needed that affirmation and that support at that point or that actually perhaps a lot of your self-worth you felt like had gone perhaps because you weren't achieving the results that you wanted to and your identity as an athlete is so much reflected in the numbers and the results yeah I think yeah I think you hit the nail on the head there like I think there's I had a massive issue around accepting myself obviously with an eating disorder I couldn't accept my body image I had a real issue around that I had a real issue around self-worth from previous historic events I was just I was so lonely in myself. I couldn't love myself. And I think when you get to that point, you don't really care. You were saying that, you know, initially you knew there was a problem, but you weren't sure if you were the problem or not, or acknowledging that that was a problem. I think it's very easy to see the problems as external to us. And it's the forces of nature that are creating the problem was part of the beginning of your upward clamber (laughs) let's call it partly recognizing that you had a problem that was sort of internal and working out what those different bits were and then beginning to work on those areas 
I think it's really interesting you say that because I think so often when we have problems, we think it's ourselves. And I think that's the mistake. I think internalizing the problem is the mistake because I think actually we aren't our thoughts. We aren't our feelings. We aren't our behaviors. Emotions aren't good or bad. They just are. And like, nothing is permanent. And you've got to get into the mindset that actually you're not a problem on this planet, but you need to do something about your situation because we can't control our lives. Like we have, we don't know where we're going and we can't control that, but we can influence the factors that affect us getting there. And I think that was where I started lift off, so to speak. And I think from there, the amount of lessons and things that I've learned about myself, about my environment on my journey have just been astronomical. And I'm so grateful actually, and I don't regret anything that went on because I would never be the person I am today. I think what you're saying there about recognizing there's a huge amount that we can't control in our lives, but then actually working on the things that are within our power to sort of start making things better, but recognizing that there are some things that just happen. And then there are other things where you're like, okay, so this is the situation I right now do feel like this. Now, what can I do to change that? I think this idea of self-worth is a really fascinating one. It's something I've thought a lot about. I have a much more modest background as an athlete, but I still know the feeling of when you do well in a race and you win, that gives you this kind of feeling of satisfaction, this feeling of self-worth, or it certainly can do. Yeah. Or if you, you know, if you write poetry, if you feel you've created yeah. something you're very proud of, or success in the, in the workplace and the job and doing a good yeah. presentation, that can all tie up with our self-worth worth and i'm wondering for you you started at a pretty rock bottom place there what were the ingredients that then built it up what were the things that you drew upon i think first of all to talk about the self-worth and the identification as an athlete that is massive i even get it on a rest day and if i haven't done a training session i'm like who am i what where is my identity gone so i think that's huge and it's really important i've learned to not judge yourself or other people based on their successes or even what they can offer you. You have to judge it on their values and bettering yourself each day. So I think the priory massively helped that. Getting more self-acceptance and self-awareness, I think, was the beginning. Uh, one of the exercises we did at the Priory was almost taking yourself above yourself as a witness and having a conversation with that witness over what you're doing, how you're feeling. And that dialogue between someone looking at your situation compared to you, I think is really powerful because so often you suffer more in, in imagination than in reality. So I think that was a massive part of the witness scenario where you think your life is just so awful, but actually you rise above it and you realize that you can do certain things or you can take 10 minutes to just kind of have a more meditative state and be more mindful. So that was the beginning, I think. And can you describe to us how that conversation changed when you're talking about self-worth before you kind of rise above and you become you know, looking down at Zoe in the room. Can you give us an example of the conversation that you'd have had before that and then how that changed as you moved into this sort of outside the body, talking about Zoe as, as if she was another person? Yeah, so I think for me, 
it massively stems from eating. I think that's where everything kind of rooted back to. And so I would have a conversation with myself around if I was feeling restrictive and I would rise above and say, is this necessary? How do you feel in this situation? Judge yourself as a person and an athlete over how to fuel your body, not what image you want to look like and comparing to another person. Yeah, for me, it was definitely around food and being mindful of what I was trying to achieve with food rather than comparing. And are you saying that the basis of that unhealthy relationship was you saw almost food as a vehicle for making you better or skinnier than those around you? Yes, yes. And I think the fight in my head was try and be skinnier, but I also need to feel for performance. So that constant battle between two sides of my brain was something I needed to rise above and pick the mindful side. And now we're, I guess, a year, 18 months or so on from that period. These sorts of, I think when you've been through something like depression, like an eating disorder, from conversations I had, it's not something that necessarily ever leaves you entirely. Is that something you find? And are there ways that you try and navigate and kind of keep on the right side of things even today? Because I think that's one of the things when people think, okay, or you hear about someone who's conquered their eating disorder. I think it's a very long process that probably is something that lasts with you a lifetime. Massively, yeah. I still have thoughts that crop up today and it's a really tricky one with food. You eat five times a day or three times a day as an athlete. So it's something you can't really run away from, but it's, it's trying to figure out coping mechanisms and ways of dealing with it so that it doesn't have a detrimental impact on you. Can you give us an example of what helps you? I think it's dealing with the thoughts better. Sometimes I write things down to try and make it logical. Sometimes I do voice notes. There's a, there's a gap between stimulus and response. I'm a massive fan of that theory. Mm-hmm. And in that gap, you have a decision to make. And this applies for anything. If someone's, if someone's annoying you, that's a stimulus. Your response can be to go, okay, yes, I understand, whatever, or to get really angry. So the stimulus being food or the thoughts. And then I can respond in now a much more self-aware state voice notes, writing it down, just taking five minutes to just go and sit, sit somewhere or going for a walk or just doing something that's mindful. So it's almost taking you out of that moment. And if your kind of temptation was, you know, I should really shouldn't be eating that or that much. And then it sounds like actually you sort of take a step back and you go, okay, so what, what's my goal? My goal is to be a, a better athlete. Do I need food to get there? More food for proper recovery? Yes, I do. Do I feel discomfort about eating this much food? Perhaps, but still I need to eat this food to get that performance. Is that the kind of... Totally. Okay. It's, I find this really interesting as well. You're saying a word about stimulus and response and the, the choice that we have in that we get a certain stimulus and we so often think that it leads to a certain response that it has to. Yeah, a great example of someone annoying you, but you let yourself be annoyed. Someone doing something, yeah. just a particular action that we then find annoying and let us get yeah. to us. I had a really interesting example of this. Actually, I don't think it's particularly exciting, but you know, I, I think it's interesting. I came off my bike just before the start of restarting Bristol to Beijing, maybe actually about three weeks before 
gravel on the road, didn't see it, came off. I completely tore a big hole in my hip, basically. And in that moment, just within seconds of coming off, I realized like, I have a choice. Like either I decide I'm going to be really annoyed and miserable and just like hate the world because I've now got this big graze, big cuts, road rash and all of this. And this is just kind of turned my plans a little bit inside out. Or I'm like, well, this has just happened. I actually can't do anything more about it. I've definitely got this, this graze and I can choose whether it's going to drag me down or not. And I wouldn't say this always happens or even often, but at that point I was just like, well, this is my choice. I'm, I'm actually going to enjoy the rest of the ride. It hurts, sure, but I can't do anything about that. So I might as well try and enjoy the ride. And you know, it, it is what it is. I'm going to carry on with my life and not get dragged down by it. Totally. I think it's easier said than done, but for whatever reason, I was in that mood that day and happier for it at the end of it. I think that was yeah. the biggest motivator. I knew that it would just make me unhappy if I let myself be unhappy. Yeah, exactly. The other thing with this you know, self-acceptance that you really developed at the Priory. And I just, I know we're spending quite a lot of time here, but I think this is something that so many people face, not perhaps a di- eating disorder, but I think we all face difficulties, not necessarily going to sort of clinically diagnose depression, but we all have doubts over our own self-worth and accepting who we are and whether we're good enough. And I am very much included in that, you know. So I just think it's, uh, there's potential to learn a lot here of like, how did you develop, build your self-acceptance, accepting Zoe as, as Zoe? I think it's a really tricky one and I still struggle with it today. Uh, it's really important to share. And I think it's important that when we don't know an answer or when we are still learning that we are vulnerable enough to state that, everyone has problems. They then project those problems onto other people, but we don't know that they're suffering and then we take their problems onto our own. So I think it's really important to see everyone as individuals. Everyone has their own lives that they're dealing with, that they're coping with, and that we can't just absorb all of this negativity or or not necessarily negativity, but all of these, these faults or opinions of other people when they don't know the full story and they're not living in my body. So for me, it was about, I am in charge of my body. I need to accept myself in my situation not compared to other people not just take on joe blogs who's just walking down the road and shout out all oh, your fat how do they know me like am i really going to be affected by someone's opinions that i don't value them and they're not going to value me that's an important lesson to learn and i think just honestly knowledge has been my key to everything and i think it started from the self-awareness but i think developing that has been fundamental in how I've changed. So you're saying that it's very easy to let the the judgment of others affect us and and bring us down, even though they're just often seeing a very superficial side of us and don't know the whole story behind what we're going through. Yeah, exactly. I think it's such an interesting one that as well, though, because there is that bind on one hand, we can define ourselves, but on the other hand, we do operate in the social environment and if you yeah. behave like a dick to people like consistently, yeah. then that's going to annoy them. So there's this give and take as well. It's weird to some extent, it feels like it does matter what you do, but not to sort of take on other people's negative energy, I suppose. I think the biggest thing to me that I've realized and actually I've, I've really dealt with is that if I don't like a certain value or characteristic or personality mm. and they're projecting negativity or detrimental things towards me, to 
one, maybe address the situation and communicate it. And if it's still ongoing, you remove yourself from it. Why accept anything below what you are worth? I think that's so important. I think people get so caught up in, this is my workplace, like I've got to be here. Like you have a choice. You don't have to be there. Yeah, you have a choice and then you have to deal with the consequences. You leave your job, you might be jobless, but you have a choice not to be there. So it goes back to the stimulus response. You have a choice of how to respond and you have a choice with how to deal with people in your life. Go out and get someone that has better values and deal with that. And I think for me, after coming out of that spiral, I realized that I can be happy on my own and I'm good enough on my own. That anyone who comes into my life has to add value and has to add positivity because if they don't, then why am I wasting my time? Yeah, I think we all have this opportunity, right? I, I really do think that regardless of our background and what is going on, we always have the choice in how we deal with the things that happen to us. And I know it's it's very easy for me to say this and us to discuss it. I recently read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning and it is accounts in the Second World War of being in a concentration camp and somehow being one of the few people who survived. And even in this book, he was saying, you know, that there was a choice in how the successful people, the people who still wanted to live and got through and not, not all of them did, even if they did want to try and get through was that their mindset towards that situation. And I felt that was very powerful that if it's true in in a concentration camp, then I think, I don't think it's always straightforward to sort of change your job when you've got like loads of different responsibilities, but you can choose how you deal with things that you are facing in that job or in in life. I remember that the passage that you're talking about in a different book, they were saying how the Jews, they were being told to work or do certain things that they didn't like to do. And I think as Victor said, either you can choose to have a negative outlook on what they're asking you to do, or you can change your approach and your attitude and actually enjoy scrubbing the floor or enjoy not enjoy it but you just have a a less negative outlook on it yes i think it's an experience far 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 removed from what anything i've ever struggled dealt with but i think to me it always comes back to the way that i'm dealing with a challenge the way that's going to make it easiest to deal with you and then there's this whole thing of it can feel very seductive to die in a ditch over things there's a lot more that we could talk about there but I think maybe let's take this conversation onto a slightly different realm. Some people listening to this, you know, might think that Zoe, she, she's a pentathlete. There's horsing, there's fencing, there's all these posh people sports. Your upbringing, your childhood must have been incredibly cushy. I'm sure there were plenty of privileges in their way, but it certainly wasn't a childhood and you know, teenage time without its challenges either, which I think makes it very striking that you have still managed to excel and succeed at the the top levels of pentathlon. You alluded earlier to some particular challenges and I wondered if you wanted to take us through them. Yeah, so I think it's important to, in hindsight, recognize that 
people's lives from the outside might look cushy and might look privileged. And I remember actually chatting very recently to a very long-term friend of mine. And she said, yeah, when we were growing up, when we were 9, 10, 11, we saw you living in your nice house with nice horses and doing nice things being successful, whatever. But actually, she said, you wonder what was going on inside that. And now she understands it much better. Just the fact that maybe it's not all about what you've got. It's actually about the love and the environment that you're living in. So I think that's a really important message to anyone, not to just judge a book by its cover because they have no idea what's going on inside that person's life. But my teenage years were tricky. I struggled at school and then I think the hardest part came when I was in my last couple of years at school and I was at a party and I was sexually assaulted. Um, and it took me two years to kind of come to terms with what had happened. I just very quickly pushed it under a carpet and didn't really feel the need to do anything about it. Didn't really want to think about it. It kind of felt like if I had brought it up, then no one would believe me or that it wouldn't have happened to someone like me. And I think people often see rape as some kind of 10 second robbery attack in a dark tunnel of someone you don't know. But actually it happens to one in four females and it's usually someone that they do know. So I think it's important to understand to understand that. When we were talking before, you said it was almost like you wanted to, you like, I'm, I'm stronger than this. I'm, I'm better than this. I'm, I, I'm going to not let this get me down. Yeah. I don't think it's as straightforward as that. Yeah, I, I guess I, I was... I just pushed it under the carpet and I just, I, like you say, I just wanted to rise above it and I didn't want to become that victim. And I tried to just move on with my life. And I think it was only when I then went to Bath that I felt like I wanted to start afresh. And to do that, I needed to sort out my past. And that's when it started to kind of crop up and be uncovered. I guess, what was that, what was that process like? It was something that you'd probably told yourself either wasn't very important or didn't matter. And at some point you had to actually acknowledge this did matter and is very important. And something really, really bad had happened to you and you hadn't you sort of put the acknowledgement to one side. Yeah, and I think for so long, I didn't believe that it was sexual assault because I, to be honest with you, I didn't know what, I didn't know what sexual assault was. I think so many of us are so oblivious to the communication around those kind of things. And I think it's really important here to say that there's no such thing as non-consexual sex. Like it's, it's rape, <laughs> but there's consensual sex or there's, that it's rape and being silent doesn't mean yes either. So I think when I realized those two things, then I was able to action it and say, this wasn't right. I need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And you're saying you, you didn't believe it was sexual assault. What do you understand sexual assault to be now? I think like I just said, like, I think it, it should be a communicated area. And I remember talking to a, a girlfriend of mine probably six months ago about sexual assault and the communication around it. And she was just saying, even now with her boyfriend, every single time that they want to sleep together, they will talk about 
consent. And I said to her, isn't that a bit weird, like a bit robotic, a bit odd? And she said, no, like this should be normal. This process is a very communicative process and it shouldn't be considered odd to do that. Like it should be considered normal. Mm -hmm. And so there always to be like an explicit agreement that this is what both parties want to do. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a written, written agreement or anything, mm. anything major, but mm. it's just, it's just a, an understanding and a communicated understanding. So, you know, I, I consider myself to be a nice guy. I'm sure there could be a lot of people out there, nice people. I think I've heard a signal, you know, oh, we're getting physical, it's going well. And I'm like, well, clearly this is on the cards. And I'm just sort of putting a situation out there really interested in suggesting so I might be thinking oh well she's clearly into it yeah sex is perhaps gonna happen yeah I guess in, in your sort of sorry what would the right or good response or good action from that kind of dominant party be I guess this is where I should also say like I've learned a lot and I'm still learning but for me now my approach to it is is this what you want do you want to continue are you happy with this would you like to go further like it doesn't have to be do you want to have sex with me we're not 12 here it's just being vulnerable yourself and as soon as you're vulnerable someone else can trust you and i don't think until you can be if you can't have the guts to ask that question sorry you shouldn't be having sex with them and like if if you can't be vulnerable then they're not going to love you for who you are so i think it's it is as simple as that I think that's a really great way of looking at it because when you're saying being vulnerable yourself, what I take by that is like saying, opening yourself up to being rejected and saying like, oh no, I don't want to have sex with you. And you're like, oh, crikey, ego (laughs) knock. (laughs) But then that's the difference. If they do want to have sex, then that's great. And therefore the question is kind of just goes into the annals of history as being an important, but sort of not particularly noteworthy detail. But if it's not something that one of the parties wanted anyway, then actually does one want to be the person who creates a lot of pain? And I think it's really important that we're having this conversation because I think so many people shy away from it and therefore it's not brought up and therefore how can we learn? Like Mm. we're literally going into this blindfolded. We don't get taught it at school, the ins and outs of social social scenarios around sex. But so Mm. how are we going to learn it if then we then go into the real world and no one else talks about it? It's gonna have a (laughs) gonna be a problem. Yes, I think there's often a sort of a, a reading between the lines that when so many things, you know, in that this kind of scenario aren't verbal anyway, I think there's sometimes when it's very willful rape. And I think yeah. there are also a lot of times, I would imagine there are a lot of times, perhaps many more times when it wasn't sort of done with a really sort of sadistic or cruel state of mind. It was actually just a sort of, oh, I thought this was we both wanted and it was just what I wanted sort of thing yeah yeah Yeah. and I think I think the biggest thing that I've learned not only with sex but in sport in business in life Mm. is that communication people bang on about it it's one of those over overused words but actually to me communication is all about honesty and timely so you can be honest but it happens too late Mm. you can be timely but not be honest and for me, the good communication comes when both of those happen at the same time. And actually, I think you can almost solve any problem with timely, honest communication. 
I think that's yeah, very powerful, both being you know, saying this is actually how I feel. This is, this is who I am. Take me for who I am. This is part of, you know, self-acceptance as well. This is how I feel right now. I don't want to have sex. Yeah. This is who I am. And if you don't like that, then find someone else and respect my decision. But then also saying it at a, an, an appropriate time, one that makes yeah. sense in a given scenario and of course, and many scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to give me, I think, some food for thought about successful communication. I think part of the trouble with that, isn't it? You know, when you're being honest is again, one of these themes that we've come back to is vulnerability. When yeah. I'm honest with you or with someone else, I really am opening myself up to, you know, I like to give this projection of myself as being this great, perfect guy or, you know, whatever it is. And then actually when you're like, oh, but um, I ha- I'm really concerned or anxious about this or that. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, but, but Luke is certain about everything that he does. He, yeah. He's got life sorted and you're like, oh, I'm admitting that that's not the case. Yes. I have a whole diversity of friends but one is a very lovely but slightly older woman than me I think she's about 50 and I remember her saying the best dates aren't the ones that are slick and perfectly run they're the ones that we are vulnerable we we tell the other person oh we're a bit anxious here we don't don't know what to do here and actually you remember them because there's a feeling and there's a openness Mm. that isn't there if you just pretend to sit up really well and you hold in that fast or you whatever like it's not the same you don't connect on the same level yeah so yeah come back to vulnerability just yeah i think it's really important yeah big big fan of brené brown shout out yeah. to brené favorite <laughs> ted talk probably so we, we've already we've talked about you know some pretty big issues so far we talked about eating disorder depression sexual assault these are some big, big experiences for, for anyone at any point. You're 21 now. I, this is a lot for anyone, even more so, I'd say, at, at the age of 21. Where has this left you now? You've been through a lot of different experiences. You're still competing and you're looking to carry on improving and developing at the highest level in pentathlon. How have these experiences that we've covered changed your approach to life? I think in a number of ways, it's tricky to put a finger on one specific process or theory that has changed me because I would like to think that I live it each day. But I think now my approach to training is much more journey driven. The outcome is important, but that is a bonus to me. If it takes eight years to win a gold medal and that gold medal is the best part of 10 minutes, is it really worth it if those eight years have been absolutely awful? Uh, you haven't made any friends, you haven't done anything with your life. Who have you got to take home that gold medal to? So for me now, it's about bettering myself each day, really enjoying the process, living a fulfilling life, having an enriched journey and learning more about myself every day. And the things that I think I've said to you before, I never regret anything or haven't regretted anything that I've been through regardless of how awful they've been or how difficult it's been, I wouldn't regret it. It's led me on this path to be who I am today. And I'm able to relate to people so much better. I've become a completely different person. So I I have only got those challenges to thank. And actually more recently I've realized 
what really makes me tick is sharing these experiences, relating to these experiences with other people, helping other people to achieve their potential or overcome a certain challenge. And that's something that as a selfish athlete we're labeled as, I would never have imagined. So that's been really powerful and really uplifting in this journey. Let's just go back to the, the journey and the goal, because I think that's something yeah. that everyone can relate to in that you know, we can be you know, fixated on a number of different things, you know, whether it's climbing a career ladder or getting to a certain position in a company or even entering a certain company or buying a house and yeah. paying off the mortgage or starting a family. Any number of different things we can be focused on that, that end result and forget that really the end result kind of doesn't matter. It's what happened on the way to that end result because that's actually your life. That's the bit that you've lived. The goal is just the result of how you've lived in yeah. essence. And I was thinking about this before this conversation and I think there is a role for the goal, but I think the goal puts you on the journey and that's the main purpose of the goal. It's not to actually the goal itself. It's just to put you on a certain path and it's that path which should be the interesting and the exciting and the enriching bit, not the goal. Yeah. Totally. Couldn't agree more. I think you've knocked it on the head there. There is nothing more to add to that, I think, than enjoying the journey. And people bang on about it, yes. But I think only once you really accept that and live it and action it, that it can become part of your everyday life that you enjoy. So yeah, the journey. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things that always feels like a cliche, good advice that people say. And to me, it's not about it being good advice. It's do this and you're actually going to be happier because on a day in day out basis, you're going to be doing the things that you really enjoy. And that's the motivation. It's not because some wise guy says it like it's because this is going to be better for you. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be look like this or that. That's the bit that each person's got to work out for themselves. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a quote that says hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And I think you can only work hard if you enjoy something. Now, the problem I think in society that we have is when we're growing up or when we're early stages of our lives, we do the things we're good at, not the Mm. things that we enjoy. Because Mm. maybe mummy is taking us all around the country and we're really privileged. Maybe daddy has a bit of a deeper pocket than other daddy that's not able to take your competitor to wherever to train. So I think when we're all leveled out and we leave the nest and we are entered into this big wide world, that is all completely pointless and you need to enjoy it. And I think so many people look at what they're good at, not what they enjoy and then drop out. Yeah, I think this is an absolutely fascinating point. And I was having a discussion with a friend about this recently about, you know, in school, we find out quite quickly what we're good at. And those are the things that, you know, and then there's a kick, right, about being good at something and getting high marks and we kind of go down that channel. But in some ways, you know, what we're naturally, inverted commas, good at is the sort of short term success. Whereas actually what we enjoy, it doesn't really matter where you start because if you put enough time in, and this is really just rephrasing what you said, if you put enough time in, then you're going to come so much better at something than you would otherwise. So at school, I felt like I was good at sciences and I was good at sciences. So I carried on with sciences at university. Sure, they were fine, but I suddenly didn't love it. And then suddenly doing all these other more creative things with this podcast and writing, I'm like, wow, this is actually really good fun. I enjoy it. I'm not necessarily, I didn't necessarily shine at English at school, but actually this is something I enjoy a lot more, give or take, 
I do like biology somewhat, so <laughs> it's not that straightforward. But it's it's so fascinating that what we felt that we were good at was the thing that we should also carry on with our careers. But the long term success is when you're doing something that you enjoy, not that you just happen to be good at at the start. Yeah, totally. And I think we should all celebrate being better rather than being the best. And especially when we're bringing up kids, I think that's a really important lesson to learn that I think we should stop instilling that this is a perfect scenario, perfect person that we're gonna be. Just mm. let's look to be better. Like we weren't put on this planet to be perfect. We were put on this planet to be better each day. I can definitely get behind that. And to me, that also underpins one of, I guess, my philosophies for life. And that's that we have this amazing capacity to develop ourselves. Who I was and how good I was at producing podcasts six months ago isn't the same as today, thank goodness. But we are work in progress. And to me, that's a really, it's a really exciting thing, not a, a negative thing. Yeah, totally. And I kind of want to sort of finish with talking about, you said, you know, the classic selfish athlete stereotype and I've been one I've talked to many what is it that you now feel like you get out of you know moving beyond just this personal performance that you're saying the way that you've been helping people sharing your experiences what is it that gives you that a a gold medal doesn't Oh, that's a tricky question. I think ever since I've come out with having mental health issues, uh, I remember putting it on social media and the people that have contacted me, I've really enjoyed helping. But I think it's really important to also say those people, some I knew and some I knew that were struggling, some I had no idea who they were and some I knew them, but I didn't know they were struggling. So it just shows you that issues or problems can come from all areas of life and in all shapes and scenarios and I've really enjoyed I'm no expert but I've really enjoyed just sharing my experiences what helped me what might help them and it gives me a real buzz seeing someone improve seeing someone get closer to their potential I think yes I can definitely get behind that as well that it's one thing to achieve something for yourself and to have overcome yeah. the challenge yourself as is the topic of this podcast. But it's really exciting to see how one's own experiences can actually then make a change in other people's lives. So they don't kind of fall down necessarily the, the same, go into the same traps and pathways and the same spirals that we might've done. Yeah. I think it's having that higher purpose, isn't it? There's a selfish purpose that might be getting that gold medal, but there's a higher purpose that mm. maybe people haven't found yet. And I certainly have only just, found that that might be mine but I think that really helps guide you and what exactly really makes you tick mm. one final thing that we talked about before and I just think it's sort of so, so relevant to a number of different things that we've been touching on you know what makes us tick and the way that we live our lives is gratitude or being you know appreciative and I was just wondering if you could share a few thoughts on what gratitude means to you and then how it, it's so easy to say, right, today I'm going to be grateful that the sun is shining, that I have beautiful children, I've got a job that pays me money, I'm alive. It's very easy to say I should be appreciative of these things. It's so much more yeah. difficult to actually feel it. Yeah, I think, again, gratification, gratitude diaries, gratitude this, that, whatever, is a massively overused and overplayed subject that I 
think therefore means that we don't fully understand it and respect it. We think it's that hippie, hippie thing that some people do. But for me, I've found that not only when you're having a bad day, but also when you're having a good day is writing three things down that have gone well that day. And what that does is it helps you relive those good moments, which mm. reinforce that positive pathway in your brain. But also I think it's a really good thing to have in your mind as you're going throughout the day, because then you're trying to pick up on those, what am I grateful for? Like, mm. what am I happy about? It's an in the moment throughout the day thing, but also a reflection thing that I think is really important. So that's something that I try and stick to each day. And I think also it's important to mention uh, we've spoken about like being in the present and I think it's a really tricky thing to do. Like I still struggle doing it myself. And like you say, you, you, you can be in a beautiful area and you are trying so hard to pick up on like why am I not grateful for it and then you feel guilt and the guilt is one of the lowest states of emotion that there are so that's just going to kill you so I think it's really important to free ourselves from that guilt but also to think about in that present moment maybe we should be feeling more grateful but actually just think about something that is going really well in that moment is the sun shining? Are you riding a really nice bicycle? Are you healthy? Have you got food on the table? Have you got a house to go back to? Have you got a friend that you could call? Like there are good things at every single point. And as soon as you start thinking about those good things, it leads to a positive spiral. So I think that is my philosophy on it. So it's something I was going to ask you was if you're, because I listened to one of your podcasts about how you're whinging to your dad when you first started out on the bike. And I was going to ask how you, like in that moment, should you think in terms of, could I be happier now? Or are you thinking in the long term? Um, there's a, should I be happier now versus a long term question. And there's a, was I present when I was aware that I was whinging on the yeah. bike? Yeah. Are they two different questions? Yeah, let's go with that. Okay, two different questions. <laughs> So it was, it was really interesting when I was on the tandem, and I think this started the first episode of the second series of this podcast, that I was you know, saying I was, I, was, <laughs> I was really miserable on the bike. I was, you know, it was just like, this, the gears aren't changing. It's really slow uphill. This feels nothing like my road bike. And you're asking me, you know, was I present in the moment? And the interesting thing was that I think, yes, I was. I was in the sense of I was aware that I was whinging and this wasn't a very good way of dealing with the situation. And I think that would have, that actually in itself is quite a change from yeah. how I would have dealt with this two, three years ago. I think then I'd have just been unhappy without thinking beyond it. Yeah. Certainly back when I was 10, we went on a family cycle trip down the Rhone Valley. And I think basically that was me whinging for like 14 days solid. <laughs> who knows how my parents put up with me and certainly at that point I was just whinging I wasn't really thinking beyond it but in this situation I was like I know that I'm not dealing with this very well I know that if I can change my mindset it's not going to change what's happening but it's going to change the way that I feel about it and yeah. you know the sun won't be shining any more or less the color of the amazing blue sky won't be any bluer or less but I will be able to see these things you know, take them to heart and I think what you were talking about when you kind of trying to pick out good things in your day, to me, there's, that's a matter of perspective. And in life, there's always going to be plenty of things that if we want to focus on them, we're going to come to the conclusion that life's a bit of a shithole. 
And there's going to be plenty of things if we choose to focus on them that we can really say, wow, life is amazing. There's so much great stuff yeah. out there. So to come back to the, the tandem, I think really what it came down to, one of the things it came down to was expectations that I just wasn't prepared. I had forgotten what it was like to ride Chris. And I think that for me was a very difficult adjustment that actually this, this is what it means to ride to Beijing on a tandem. Deal with it. Yeah. And if I can't deal with it, then either stop the expedition or get a road bike or something else. But yeah. if I want to do it on the tandem, this is what it's going to be yeah. like. Yeah. And I think once I got around that mental barrier, it was a lot easier to appreciate the surroundings, the, the journey, the experience, even my, yeah. my dad's bad chat. I guess also the other thing I was going to ask was you talk about living a fulfilling and enriching life now because you need to live in the present and the future may not always be so in your control. As advice to other people, what is your advice for living the best life? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think what it will look like is going to be different for each person. And for very few people that will be cycling to Beijing on a tandem. That was just what the answer looked like for me at that point. I think there's a lot about being honest with yourself and following your nose of like what excites you. Perhaps not everyone thinks with their nose, but for me, that's always been something like, do I get excited by this? And if I do, then perhaps that's something I should be pursuing further. I think there are trade-offs. Cycling around the world it isn't a feasible long-term strategy. It doesn't pay any bills, and you know it's not suitable if you, you want to like start a family. It makes it much much more difficult. So I think that's when the the reality of life comes in, and it's like, well, if I if I want some stability in an income, there are going to be certain trade offs that I have you know that have to be made. Well, within these options, what excites me the most, and that might mean that you can't necessarily spend your whole life traveling around the world. But if you want to have an income and you want to have a family, well, that's probably the trade-off you've got to make. And within those constraints, well, work out what is most exciting for you. And also, I suppose, to revisit this regularly. I recently yeah. read a book called Range by David Epstein, which I thought was brilliant and basically saying that it's okay. You don't have to be in a career. You decide I want to be a lawyer or an accountant or work for the military for my whole career. Do it for two years. Yeah. And then you can pivot and you can change again and you can change again and you actually be bringing lots of valuable life experience. So that, that appeals to me. Yeah, I think, I think someone asked me the other day, who is the most interesting person you've ever met? And they weren't the most successful. They weren't the most, I don't know, uh, they weren't the biggest idol of society, mm. but they were of mine because I knew them to be so, they had everything from all walks of life, all stories, all journeys, all experiences, challenges, they've overcome them. Um, and I think that's what, like you're saying, you can switch jobs and that makes you a very interesting person. Yeah, and I think it, it's just important to boil this back down to what are the most valuable things in life? And I think it's money plays a role in allowing us to have experiences, to have some security, to put a roof over your head and have, have enough food and basic things but I think for me the most valuable things are the experiences 
because that's sort of what I think life is about. It's, you know, what can we get from these amazing opportunities yeah. around us? Like, how do you live a rich life? I think it's to have lots of varied experiences. That's my personal, my personal thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so some, some big topics there. Yeah, mm. happiness, living richly, and perspectives, I suppose, in a nutshell. Yeah. Zoe, it's been absolutely fantastic chatting to you. Thank you so much for sharing some very personal episodes from your life and taking us through them and how you negotiated them. As you know, I can't let you go before I ask you my three questions, which I ask every guest so I can essentially know where to travel, (laughs) what to listen to and which books to read so I can develop myself as we were talking about on this constant exciting path of being better tomorrow than we are today. It's all very saccharine when you put it like that, but I think it's still true. So Zoe, what is your favorite place? One of them. It's tricky because I have been to some amazing places, very grateful for sport, for providing that opportunity. But I think it's got to be Font-Rameau, which is where we do our altitude training camp in the Pyrenees. It's just the fresh air, the sunshine, the mountains, the lake. It's just the most beautiful place ever. It has some great memories attached to it, I think, as well. Fantastic. Your favourite piece of music? This is heavily dependent on my mood, but I think I would have to go with Half a Man by Dean Lewis. Okay. What situations do you listen to that? I've never never come across it. I think it was just a, the lyrics are very telling for me when I am, well, when I was in that stage of accepting myself because it talks all about how can you be half a man and fully love someone else. And so it's it's saying you need to be a full person. You need to fully embrace yourself before you can fully love someone else. Nice. I like it. And your favorite book? This has also changed since this podcast. Um, (laughs) I would say Law of Attraction, but I think I've now got to say Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen Covey. Yeah, that's the one. (laughs) That is a fantastic book. I remember the, the the personal mission statement he writes yeah. about. To me, that's I actually that was basically as far as I got in the book. Uh, I didn't read the rest of it, but I found it enormously helpful just to be like, okay, what do I, devoid of all other pressures, people, influences, what do I value? And if I yeah. live my life consistent with these things, then I can't screw up as long as I follow yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, funny you say that. Actually, that's only where I've got to as well. <laughs> but I am I'm getting through it. Uh, and I think it's one of those books that you have to kind of live life alongside and kind of put it into practice. Yeah. Thank you, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Zoe, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you on Facing Up. Thank you so much for sharing this conversation. No, thank you. It's fully enriched my life. <laughs> <laughs> and mine. And that was my conversation with Zoe Davison. Thank you so much, Zoe. And thank you for listening and being a part of our chat. I think as I carry forward on the journey to Beijing, this is going to keep me grounded that it's not about getting to Beijing. It's not about the 10 seconds of glory that await me there. It's not, as Zoe said, about the 10 seconds of glory of Olympic gold. It is about the day in, day out process that gets you there. 
And it's the process that's got to be enjoyable. It's the journey that's got to triumph over the goal itself. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please rate us, subscribe and share it with your friends, your dog or indeed a fox that you see out on the street. Whoever it is, please share this episode. We would love to get it out to as many people as possible. And until next week, this has been Facing Up. Goodbye. Goodbye.